Well, good morning. And welcome to Linwood Evangelical Free Church, especially to those of you who are visiting with us today. Uh, what a blessing it is to have you here with us today. We're, we're pleased to have you. Um, if you have your Bibles open, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be covering uh, verses 9 through 12 today. Uh, really, what we're addressing in this section, uh, as we started last week in, in chapter 4, is living a life that's pleasing to God. That's really what this is all about. And... Uh, you know, one of the things that we saw last week is, is living a life of purity, li- living a, a pure life. But we're going to be talking about something that's probably just as important today. Uh, it, it's, it's kind of the flip side of, uh, of uh, what we learned to avoid last week, and we're going to see that. You know, as, we, if we've, as we've gone through our study of First Thessalonians, uh, one of the things that we've seen, one of the, things, uh, one of the themes that Paul kind of comes back to from time to time throughout this book is the theme of, of love. Um, and that's something that I think really matters to God a lot. And because it matters to God a lot, it matters to, to Paul a lot. Uh, have you ever wondered um, why love maybe matters so much to God? Have you ever wondered that? Uh, I think maybe we could answer that question by remembering that God is love. And that's revealed in what I think is maybe one of the most frightening verses in, in all of Scripture, First John chapter 4, verse 8, where the Apostle John says, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And for somebody like me, you know, I, I, I look at that verse, and it makes me ask myself, it, it, it kind of turns the tables on me and says, are you loving? You know, check yourself here. Are you loving? Because if you don't, that has some really serious implications. But... Okay, just to, to back up a little bit, what, what does love mean? Do you guys remember we, we talked about this a little bit as we've gone through our study of 1 Thessalonians? Love means, basically, in a nutshell, to put somebody else's needs before your own. If you were to summarize what love means and how Paul really defines it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that's what it means. It means putting somebody else's needs before your own, right? And we've seen that this is something that, uh, that Paul's come back to, and we actually see that this is something that Jesus talked a lot about as well. He said some really interesting things about love and who has love and who doesn't. Uh, for example, in John chapter 5, verse 42, Jesus says to a bunch of unbelieving Pharisees, he says, I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. So it's worded in a way that we can interpret that as saying uh, the, the, the love of God, meaning God's love for them, or uh, their love for God. It, it's just not there. They haven't accepted God's love because they're really only concerned with themselves. But however you look at it, uh, you know, somebody who doesn't follow Jesus can't reflect this, this genuine godly love that Jesus is talking about. But as followers of Jesus, that's something that we definitely can do. Uh, that's why... Um, you know, in, in his final hours, Jesus is praying about the things that matter the most to him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying about the things that are most important to him. I mean, if, if you're in your dying hours, you're, you're talking about the things and thinking about the things that are most important to you, right? You're not thinking about, boy, that, that dinner yesterday at, at Dairy Queen sure was good. Or, you know, you're thinking about things that really matter. And so he's praying, and he says to the Father, he says, I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that... The love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. And just prior to that, he had instructed his, uh, his followers, saying, A new commandment I give you, that you love 
one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So that's a trademark. That's something that identifies us as followers of Jesus. And of course, we're talking about agape love here. Agape love is is selfless love. It's self-sacrificing love for somebody else. And that's the word that Jesus is using as he's talking about these things. Now, it might be difficult for us in, in our culture uh, you know, if, if you've been raised in the church, you've, been, you, you've heard agape. You've heard of agape since like the day you were born, right? Uh, that's, that's church lingo. We all know what agape is. It's Christianese uh, for love. But, but really, um, agape, prior to the New Testament, was, it wasn't really a word. We have thousands and thousands of these Greek documents that were written prior to Christ, and none of those documents contain the word agape. It contains these other words for love, different types of love, but agape was virtually non-existent prior to the New Testament. The only other place where we can find it is in the Greek translations of the Old Testament. Uh, of course, the Old Testament was mostly written, uh, you know, 99% written in Hebrew, and so you know, a little bit before Jesus came around, uh, they, were, they were translating, and this word agape was, was used very sparingly, very, very rarely. But it was, it, this was a radical idea. This is something that Jesus really fleshed out, really brought into the light for us to understand. Uh, it, was a, it was a radical and revolutionary concept. But you know what? It is today, too. It's still a radical and revolutionary concept because it's something that we just don't naturally do. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to do. But it's something that flows out of God's nature into us as followers of Jesus, so much so that love is listed as part of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, uh, when, when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, you have to remember that fruit is singular. And then he goes on to list all these things, and one of those things is love. So, actually, the fact that fruit is singular indicates that all of those things are a package deal. So you can't say, nobody has the excuse of saying, well, you know, I don't have the gift of love. You know, that's just one of the things that God, you know, skimped out on me with. You know, I, I didn't get it, but I'm, I'm really good at patience, uh, and I'm really good at, you know, maybe self-control. No. If you've got those things, you, you've also got love. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you have love in you. Love matters to God, and it matters a lot. One of the things that, um, you know, Paul was so quick to praise the church in Thessalonica about was for their love. We've, we've seen it over and over. He praised them right off the bat in chapter 1. Uh, Paul had been forced out of the city very quickly. He was there somewhere between three weeks and three months, and he had uh, come to worry about the, the people, the, the followers of Jesus in Thessalonica. He was worried that they would fold under the pressure of persecution, and so we've seen that he sent Timothy to check up on them. And when Timothy returned, he reported that the Thessalonians were, uh, were characterized by Two things, by their increasing faith and by their love. And of course, Paul was ecstatic to hear this news. And so uh, as we transitioned into the fourth chapter, we've seen that Paul has told them, um, as we saw last week in our, in our lesson last week, we saw that Paul has told them to avoid complacency in their walk with the Lord, not to grow stagnant. And the challenge we saw in the first few verses of the chapter is to do what? It's to excel still more in their walk with the Lord. Well, what specifically did Paul want them to excel at? Apparently, the things that he had instructed them while he was with them, which were very likely some areas that maybe Timothy 
wasn't sure exactly how to handle, which is why Paul was writing this. See, Timothy had come back, and now Paul's kind of going from there. See, Timothy was, was this young guy. He was kind of a protege for, for Paul. Paul was his mentor. So Timothy was a young guy, and he may not have known exactly how to address a few very complicated issues in Paul's absence. And so Paul wanted to remind them of what he had taught them. And as we saw in last week's lesson, the item at the top of the list was sexual purity, maintaining sexual purity by uh, abiding by God's design for sex. And we saw that God's design for sex is for it to be exclusively between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. Now, we have to remember that sexual purity is something that, even as followers of Jesus, it's, it's sometimes difficult for us, but we need to embrace it, even though it's not always easy. It gets easier as, as you get into practice, as you get into good habits of uh, conditioning your reflexes, training your eyes, and things like that, and you get more control over it. So that was the first thing on Paul's list. But the next thing that Paul is going to instruct is something that's maybe um, just as unnatural just as uh, contrary to human nature. And in fact, uh, I'd say that it is definitely against human nature. So Paul continues writing in verses 9 to 10 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He writes, Now as to the love of the brethren, love of the brothers, we have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren, all the brothers who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren to excel still more. So, again, last week the first thing he said is avoid lust. Don't do that. But now he's giving us the flip side of that. Do this. Don't do that. Do this. What's the difference between lust and love? Lust is selfish. And it only desires to take. Love, on the other hand, is selfless and it only desires to give. Let me say that again. Lust is selfish. It only desires to take. Love is selfless. It only desires to give. And so Paul tells them about love. He says, excel still more. Now, that's not the first time we've heard those words, right? He's, that's, that's kind of a repetition. He's, he's uh, repeating something that he said back in the first verse of the chapter. And another reason that this should uh, maybe ring kind of a bell for us is because we've looked at some passages in which Jesus commanded his followers to do just that, to love each other. So the urge here, the command is, is not to grow complacent and don't ever feel like you've loved your brothers and sisters in Christ or uh, you have or, or that you are loving them as well as you possibly can. Don't ever grow complacent. Look for new ways to demonstrate your love and to increase in your love for your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, let's be really transparent for a second here. There are some people who are so easy to love in the brothers and sisters in Christ. There are some people, you just can't get enough of them. There's just something about them. You love being around them. You love any opportunity to serve them. They are really easy people for you to demonstrate love toward. It's not a problem for you. It's not a struggle for you to put their needs before your own because you genuinely do love these people. They're just, there's something about them that makes it easy for them to love. But it's not always that easy, is it? It's not always easy to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
It's just not. There are some people who have, maybe they have a personality that's just really different from your own. Maybe you're really passive and, and they're like super aggressive. And so for some reason, you know, you just butt heads and maybe, they, maybe you feel like they talk too much. And so, you know, you see him on your way out of church on Sunday and you think, oh boy, I better just hurry on by him, you know, so that I can get out of here before, uh, before dinner time. But yeah, there are just some people that for whatever reason, they, they get under your skin. And it's a challenge for you to love them. It's okay for us to be honest about this. And in fact, I'd say that we have to be honest about this because if we're not really honest about this, it's an issue that we'll just avoid. And I don't think Paul gives us any room to avoid this issue. So we're not going to fool ourselves. We're going we're to admit that for a lot of us, for all of us, there are some people who are more difficult than others for us to love. But what we need to do is come to the point where we love the person who's easy to love and the person who's difficult to love. We love them the same way. We love them with the same type of love. And here's the amazing thing. The amazing thing about the the love that we're called to feel and practice. It's not like we just need to learn from scratch. Paul says, God is teaching you. It's something that's already in us. Paul lists it as, as part of the fruit of the Spirit. And in other, so in other words, it's, it's in each one of us already. It's just a matter of kind of tapping into it. It's like a lamp that you need to plug in. You can choose not to plug it in, but it's there, and it works. It's a fruit of the Spirit. The fact that it's within each one of us is evidence of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, he wrote, quote, The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So the fact that because we have the love of God poured out within us, we have something that the person who doesn't follow Jesus doesn't have. We have an ability to manifest a godly type of love that someone who doesn't know or doesn't follow Jesus doesn't have. However, the fact that we, haven't does, uh, that we have it doesn't mean that we experience it or act on it or manifest it as fully or as frequently as we should. And more often than not, the people who end up on the receiving end of our love for the brothers are the people who are really easy to love. You know who's really easy for each one of us to love, for being perfectly honest here? I'm not going to say it's me. I'm not setting that up. The people who are really easy to love are the people who are a lot like us. Maybe they're the same age. Uh, Maybe they listen to the same type of music. Maybe you're in the same uh, line of work. Uh, Maybe you have the exact same beliefs. Hey, hey man, are are you you pre-trib? Oh, you are? Cool. Okay, cool. We're good. Okay. Are are you a strong Calvinist? No? Okay, good. I'm not either. We're we're cool. I, I love you, man. But really... What that means, if, if you love people who are uh, only like you, it, it really means that you love a very, very, very small percentage of your brothers and sisters in Christ. A very small percentage. And everybody else, you know, maybe they just rub you the wrong way, or you see them as somebody who, who talks too much, or, you know, for whatever reason, you see them as repulsive or needy, or, or whatever the case might be. You just struggle with feeling love for them, and the result is that you don't demonstrate or manifest love for them. 
One Christian writer had this to say. He said, quote, this is great, um, quote, loving people is about the most difficult thing that some of us do. We can be patient with people and even just and charitable, but how are we supposed to conjure up in our hearts that warm, effervescent sentiment of good, of goodwill with which the New Testament calls love? Some people are so miserably unlovable. That odorous person with the nasty cough who sat next to you in the train shoving his newspaper into your face. Those crude louts in the neighborhood with the barking dog. That smooth liar who took you in so completely last week. By what magic are you supposed to feel toward these people anything but revulsion, distrust, and resentment and a justified desire to have nothing to do with them? End quote. Wow. I mean, that sums it up, right? That, that pretty much says it all. And I think you know, we've, we've probably all felt that way at one point or another, but, but here's the good news. God has revealed in his word that we don't have to feel that way. We don't have to feel or act that way. It's a choice. It's a decision that each one of us has to make. You see, love can be, you know, this, this warm, fuzzy feeling, and it, you know, it just feels so good, and you just gravitate toward this person in love, but more often than not, love is not that warm, fuzzy feeling. More often, it's a decision. It's something that you have to act on. Because really, if you're only going to love people who are like yourself, you only love yourself. If you're only going to love people who are like yourself, you only love yourself. That's really what it boils down to. And that's not the type of life, that's not the type of love that pleases God. It's not the type of love that God has called you to have. G.K. Chesterton, who seems to have good quotes about, like, everything, guy was a genius, he wrote, quote, love means loving the unlovable, or it is no virtue at all. So the question that, that kind of is just hanging here is, so what do we do? What do we do with the people who are really difficult to love? Do we just go on and, uh, and pretend that, it, it, you know, that that tension isn't there? Pretend that they are not so difficult to love? There's a story of a, of a pastor who had a woman come into his office one day for counseling. And as soon as she walks into his office, she is red in the face. She's obviously absolutely furious. So he asks her, you know, what, what's the problem? And she says, um, my husband is the problem. I, I don't love him. I don't know if I've ever loved him. As a matter of fact, I can't stand him, and I'm, I'm going to divorce him. I'm going to leave him. I'm going to leave him for good. And you know what I want to do? I want to make it hurt him as much as I possibly can. I'm going to hurt him as badly as he's hurt me. Now, the pastor has a couple options here. He could say, oh, you don't want to do that. But this pastor has kind of a better approach to it. He says, well, I've got a plan for you. Here's what I want you to do. Go home and pretend like you really love him. Just act like you love him. You know, we both know that you don't. Go home and act like you love him. Tell him how crazy you are about him all the time. Be as patient, kind, and considerate of him as you possibly can be. And convince him, by whatever means necessary, of your undying love for him. The more convinced that he becomes that you love him this way, the more it's going to hurt when you leave him. The more it's going to hurt when you drop the D-bomb on him. Divorce, right? And so uh, this woman loves the idea. Uh, you know, she, she's calmed down now. She's, you know, probably frothing at the mouth. Uh, you know, she, she loves the idea. So she goes home 
and the pastor doesn't see her for two months. So after two months, he gives her a call, and he says, you know, how are you doing? Are you, you, know, you ready to leave your husband? She says, no, I, I can't divorce my husband. What I've discovered is that I really do love him. C.S. Lewis said this. He says, when you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. But if you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. So the point here is not to let your heart dictate your actions. Don't let your feelings dictate your actions. One of the biggest lies of of our modern age is follow your heart. If you follow your heart, everything's going to be A-OK. Just follow your heart and do whatever your heart's telling you to do. You know what? That is such a lie. The Bible says that the heart is full of deception. It is so wicked. So don't trust your heart. Don't follow your heart. Let your mind lead the way. In Romans 13, Paul talks about the need to submit to governing authorities, which means paying taxes, by the way. Hello, April. I think April 15th is this week, right? Uh, yeah, it's biblical. Pay your taxes. Um, anyway, so he goes on to write in Romans chapter 13, verses 6 to 8, For because of this you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. And this is the important thing. Render to all, render to all, what is due to them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. In other words, if you've got some kind of obligation to anybody at all, fulfill it. Fulfill it so that you can live your life knowing that you don't have that obligation to that person as you're going through life. But never feel like you have fulfilled the obligation to love each other. And Paul's telling the Thessalonians the same thing. You guys are really good at loving each other. You're good at it, but keep doing what you're doing and keep getting better at what you're doing. Excel still more is his his phrase. And you know what? Paul may as well have been writing to Linwood Evangelical Free Church. I think that we are a church that really, really, truly loves each other. That's something that that excites me. And one of the ways that I I see that uh, coming into play week in and week out is the fact that we are a multi-generational church. We have younger generations and we have older generations. The balance between 50 plus and and under 50 is, is right about even. And I don't know if you guys understand how unbelievably rare that is. Uh, You know, as I was going into church planting a few years ago, one of the things that we did to prepare for that is we went to probably 50 or so churches uh, over the period of a couple years to see what these other churches were doing. And I can can honestly tell you, there wasn't one multi-generational church that we went to. I never saw it put into action. So the fact that we've got a a multi-generational church here is, is telling to me. It reveals a lot to me about the fact that, you know, we we do love each other because most churches won't become multi-generational. You know what the hang-up is for for most churches? You know what the the one factor that causes uh, churches or prevents churches from becoming multi-generational? Music, yeah. The younger generation wants the service done their way. The older generation wants the service done their way. 
and neither side is willing to budge. Can you imagine having a marriage like that? Is it going to last? Not if neither side's ever willing to budge. No. Neither side's willing to, to compromise or give for the sake of the other in most churches. Why? Because maybe the older generation doesn't love the younger generation, and the younger generation doesn't love the older generation. Because what happens here is, is a stalemate. And so what you get, you, you get uh, one church that, you know, their, their worship set is really more like a rock concert than anything else. You know, I've been in churches where it's the same thing as a rock concert and nobody's singing. So you've got one church like that that ensures that somebody who's older than 50 will never walk through their door. And down the street, you've got a church that plays nothing but hymns, making sure that the younger generation will never walk through their door. That's how serious it is. But we have a mixed worship set here. And we have, and I, I have intentionally, I've talked with, with Carolyn about this. We intentionally want a mixed worship team where we've got people who are older than 50 and we've got younger than 50. And we want a balance. We don't want one group or the other having more of a representation up here. So we sing hymns and we sing contemporary choruses. Now, I've done my research on, on this, on, on churches that do uh, kind of a mix between, you know, having some hymns and having some contemporary choruses, and more times than not, I'd say probably 90% of the time, you know what pastors report? Everybody hates the music. The people who like hymns hate the music because, yeah, you sing a couple hymns, but we had to listen to those contemporary choruses, and the younger generation says, well, you know, we, we, you know, we sang those contemporary choruses, but we sang those hymns. And so everybody walks away from the service feeling miserable about the worship experience. And you know what I say to that? Cool. You guys have something in common. You know, so, so somebody from the older generation and somebody from the younger generation, why don't you guys get together, go out to lunch together after church, and talk about how miserable you are and how much you hate the worship music. But by the way, while you're at it, let's remember that worship isn't about us. Worship isn't about us. You know why worship wars exist? Because one generation says, my way of worshiping is better than yours. And the other group says the same thing. My way of worshiping is better than yours. But the fact is, it's all about glorifying God. That's what it's got to be about. It's not about me. It's all about Jesus and His glory it's a gift. Worship is a gift from us to him. And so really, if I can't take a song that I don't like, I'm, I'm one of those guys, I, I do prefer the, the contemporary choruses, but if I can't take a hymn and in my heart present it to Jesus as something that glorifies him, then I have to look at that fact and say, you know what, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe there's something in my heart that needs to change. A couple weeks ago, uh, we had the pastor who was the pastor here when I was born. Uh, he was here, and I had, um, I had a couple hours to talk with him. It, it was great, godly guy. Uh, absolutely loved having the opportunity to talk to him, and um, really, he was just such a, such a, a pleasure to talk to, nice guy. He's retired now, and he was telling me that the church that um, he and his wife have been going to for, or had been going to for a while, you know, they, they were doing kind of a mix, and then um, this newer, younger pastor came in, and one Sunday, the hymnals 
were all gone. They just disappeared. Because the pastor decided, oh, we're just going to do contemporary choruses. And I could see the look of disappointment and rejection in his eyes as he talked about this. See, that's not a loving thing to do. You don't, you don't just pull something out, that, uh, out from underneath somebody when that something is their way of, of worshiping. And so we have a mixed set of worship here. And we want a mixed group of people up here leading that. I try to be mixed. I don't, I don't know if you guys noticed. I know Craig's noticed. One week, I'll be wearing jeans up here because I know that the younger generation, you know, you guys dig jeans. The next week, I'll be wearing slacks. Yeah, guess what? Last week, I wore jeans. Why do I do that? Because I'm trying to be all things to all people. I know that for the younger generation, you guys kind of like seeing somebody that you can relate to, somebody who's wearing jeans. The older generation, same thing. You want somebody that you can relate to. And the older generations tended to dress a little bit nicer, dressing in slacks. So I try to do both. I try to rotate the weeks. But see, if we love one another, the older generation is going to be willing to put the needs of the younger generation first. And you know what? The younger generation is going to be willing, if they love the way that they are commanded to love, they're going to be willing to put the needs of the older generation first. And so what do you get then? You get a church like Linwood Evangelical Free Church, where you see intergenerational mingling for somewhere between half an hour and an hour after church every week. Nobody's in a rush to get out of here. I can't tell you how awesome that is to me when I see that. I just think, Praise the Lord. I'm going to be the last one out of here because I love seeing this. I love seeing the generations mix. I think that we're a church that gets what Paul's saying here about loving each other. So love should be the one thing that brings us together, to to serve each other and to do life together. God wants to see us all get along the same way that a parent wants to see their kids get along. And before we get too comfortable with this whole concept, uh, Paul's going to expand on it. So he continues writing in verses 11 and 12, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Here's the principle that he's getting at. If you love God, you want to live a life that's pleasing to him. And if you want to live a life that's pleasing to him, one of the things that you can't do is bring shame or bad reputation upon the church. Apparently, there was a little bit of a problem within the community of Christ followers in Thessalonica. I don't think that this is a problem that, um, that characterized the, the group as a whole, but there were at least some within their community who were adopting this life of just being idle and complacent. Not spiritually, but physically. So, in other words, because, uh, well, because this passage is followed immediately by a passage talking about the return of Jesus, um, you know, it's possible that they had just dropped everything and they were just standing around waiting for Jesus to come back. They'd forgotten about their work and any obligations that they have, and so you know, they've quit everything. They're just looking for the signs for Jesus coming back. You know, so, so maybe that's what it was, or maybe they had just committed themselves to, uh, to evangelizing or, or preaching full-time without any network of, uh, of support. Whatever the reason might be, there was this group within the Thessalonian Christ followers who were relying on the generosity of others to survive. 
maybe other followers of Jesus, but I think Paul is, um, is telling us that they were also making a poor impression with outsiders here. That is, people who weren't part of the community of Christ followers. So by depending on handouts from others, uh, this group of, of freeloaders in Thessalonica wasn't showing the type of love that Paul has just instructed them to show. The, the, he just instructed them to excel still more at. So how were they not showing love? Uh, I think there are a few ways. First of all, uh, they weren't being good stewards of their bodies, the healthy bodies that God had blessed them with. They were idle, complacent, lazy. And by doing that, they weren't, um, you know, they obviously weren't working. And so if there was anybody among them who was not able to work and needed to rely on the generosity of others, needed to rely on handouts, all of a sudden that person who had a genuine need was forced to share with people who didn't have a genuine need. So it wasn't loving toward people who had genuine needs, who genuinely needed to rely on handouts to survive. Secondly, it wasn't loving toward the other Christians in Thessalonica who were working. Instead of loving these people, really loving these people, they were taking advantage of them. They're taking advantage of their generosity. And if there's one thing, one thing that can scare new believers away and shake their faith to the core... It's having the impression that somebody is taking advantage of them for some type of personal gain, financial or otherwise. Paul had uh, set an example for them to follow. He came in there and he had refused to let them contribute financially or, or do whatever to support him. He had refused any support from them. Instead, he had worked, as he said, night and day to support himself so that he wouldn't be a burden to them. Third, it's, it's not loving to the, uh, to the community of Christ followers in Thessalonica in general because it's giving the outside world the impression that these guys who are following Jesus are nothing but a bunch of, of freeloaders. These guys are beggars, and they're, they're just looking for handouts. And so the whole community, as a result, would have been getting at least a tarnished reputation. So it's not loving to the whole community. Fourth, and finally, it's not loving to non-believers. Instead of being able to give and to bless unbelievers, these guys were digging themselves into at least an emotional debt, a feeling of obligation, relying on the generosity of unbelievers instead of showing love to those unbelievers by blessing them. Instead of being able to give freely to them, they were taking it freely from them. So it wasn't loving to unbelievers. Now apparently this wasn't something that was going on quietly. Apparently there were some people who were being somewhat vocal about it. We can't be exactly sure. We're not exactly sure what they were doing. Maybe they were standing on the street corner, uh, you know, saying, hey, help me out, help a guy out, I need some food, you know, whatever the case might be. They, They were being vocal about it, apparently. But Paul says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Now, don't get Paul wrong here. I don't think that he's saying you need to join a monastery where, you know, you won't talk for, you know, five or six years um, except, you know, you might make a noise when you sneeze or something, but other than that, you know, live a quiet life. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that there's never a time to speak, and he's not saying that there's never a time that you need to speak the truth of the gospel into people's lives. No, he's talking about living a life that doesn't stir up problems or friction with the authorities or with your neighbors. So he says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. A quiet life was something that was really important to Paul. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he said, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Why? So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So the goal isn't to stir up trouble or create problems for the government or for the neighbors. The goal is to be a productive member of society who keeps their reputation and the reputation of Christians clean so that the authorities don't have to step in and throw somebody in prison. Now, if they were going to be thrown in prison for their faith, that's, that's one thing. But if you can avoid being thrown into prison without compromising your faith, what's the point? What's the point? You know, the, the government doesn't want to see beggars on the streets. They don't want people who are stirring up trouble and making people feel guilty for walking by without giving to them. So, so living a quiet life that doesn't disrupt the peace was something that Paul wanted to encourage the Thessalonians to do. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands. Work with your hands. See, working with your hands in, in that culture, in that context, um, it, it was something that was looked down upon by the Greeks. They thought that only slaves were really worthy or fit to be working with their hands But that was the example that Paul had set for them. He was a tent maker. He was working with his hands. And so it was a way of of avoiding any impression that, you know, maybe he was just a freeloader. Maybe he was just there for the free ride, taking whatever handouts he could get. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your business and work with your own hands. Now, some people read through this and they'll say, now, wait a minute, didn't Jesus tell that one guy, that he needs to sell all of his stuff to follow Jesus? And, and what about the early church? You know, the early church, aren't they like selling everything that they own and, and living as a community, like kind of in a, in a compound type of situation? I, I could spend hours talking about this, but in a nutshell, no, Jesus was not, uh, not contradicting what Paul said here. Paul's not contradicting what Jesus said. The reason that Jesus had told this one rich man that he needs to sell everything that he owns to follow Jesus is because he knew that this man's God was his possessions, the things that he had. So Jesus was only speaking to one very specific person in a very specific context. Sometimes Jesus is talking to a bunch of people, and sometimes Jesus is talking to one person, and it's usually pretty obvious by the context which one it is, whether he's talking to a lot of people or one person, and it's pretty obvious in this context, it's very obvious that he's only speaking to one person. So it doesn't contradict what Paul's saying. Uh, as for the early church, yes, people were selling a lot of the things that they had, but one of the things that we can't miss is the fact that they were going around and meeting in each other's homes. Now, how would they be going into somebody else's home if that person had sold their home? They wouldn't. So they weren't selling absolutely everything that they possibly owned, but they were selling a lot of their stuff. The gist of Paul's message here is just to be a participant in the community of Christians instead of a parasite. Be a participant instead of a parasite. The way that we live and the way that we act should reflect our role as ambassadors for Jesus. And there are no excuses for not making an honest living if it's within your, pos- uh, within your capability. Yeah, God wants to provide for you. He wants to help you pay the bills, but it's really unlikely that money's just going to fall out of the sky. 
and it makes a bad reputation for Christians if you're just relying on the generosity of others and refusing to work like everybody else has to if you're perfectly able to. Now, one final thing that I, that I think we need to make note of is the fact that there are a lot of people out there who might look like a sheep, but they smell like a wolf, who will say things like, God told me that if you don't give me $8 million this year, he's going to kill me. His words were actually, he's going to take me home. This is a true story. This is something that really happened back in the 80s. Uh, you know, and, and he, so he's asking for $8 million back then. That was a huge chunk of dough back then. Uh, and today, you know, who knows how much he would ask for, but basically his goal was to build this, uh, this medical school and to be able to provide cheap tuition for the students. What a great idea. And so people bought into it, and he actually raised a total of $9.1 million, more than enough to, to build this school and to provide cheap tuition for these students. But what happened? Some people had high uh, salaries, higher salaries than they probably should have been getting, and so the result is the school went bankrupt. And so what they did is they said, okay, well, we need to completely restructure. Those of you who have already been learning here, uh, you're you're not allowed to leave. If you leave, you're going to be paying 18% interest on your student loans, and that will begin immediately if you transfer to another medical school that that offers lower tuition. The point here is that there are nasty and unscrupulous and greedy people out there who are looking to take advantage of people in the name of God. And Paul doesn't want the world to confuse us with them. So we can't miss the fact that Paul's calling us to live a life that's honest and pure and characterized by our uncompromising, selfless, Christ-like love for our fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus. Because that's the type of community he's called us to be. That's the type of community that appeals to the outside when they see us loving each other like that. They say, I want to be a part of that. When the world looks in and sees us bickering, they say, that's why I'm not a part of that. That's just the fact. Love matters to God. And so love should matter to us as well. And it should reflect in the way that we act toward one another. Let's pray. God, we just thank you and we we praise you for who you are. And Lord, we, we see so clearly what you have called us to do. And we just want to confess to you, Lord, that we haven't done it as well as we can and that we know that we can do better. And God, I just pray that you will make your love overflow in our lives. Help us to love the people who are are difficult to love. Give us that strength, Lord, and give us the conviction to put that into action, to follow our minds and your word instead of our hearts. We love you, Lord. We belong to you. Teach us to be like you. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcasts.org to keep us going and reaching 
thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Jesus alive, sick worshippers, we are loved, sick worshippers, and our hearts desire will be complete.